MSW Media. The Trump administration's response to the coronavirus pandemic has been widely criticized by governors and healthcare professionals. What should the federal government be doing to combat the pandemic? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. I'm usually joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, and she was going to join us today, but we're having some technical issues dealing with multiple uh, people in different locations. Uh, I think we're going to have her set up for our next episode, and we're excited to have her back. Uh, and we will definitely, uh, when we do, give all of you an update on her and what she's been up to. Uh, but I think, in, hopefully, you will find some Im- improved sound quality on this episode. And I've ordered some additional uh, equipment uh, for home, actually, that was uh, given loaned to us by one of our patrons uh, who has been uh, very kind and helpful, and I think that will improve our sound quality even further in our next episode. And speaking of our patrons, this episode was brought to you by our patrons. With special thanks to Ariel Blocker, Michelle Dew, Eric DeWurst, Edie, James Frohmeyer, who's the one who loaned us that equipment. Thanks, James. Jay Gelhausen, Jamie Gordon, Steve Hugsberg, Shana Wojcinski, and an anonymous patron. You can become a patron, too, on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. That's all one word. Just click on the support link at the top of the page. So now let's bring in our guest, Andy Slavin. Andy is the former acting administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services uh, during the Obama administration, and he was the leader of the team that repaired the Obamacare website after the initial rollout uh, and was credited uh, with putting together and, and uh, launching the ACA. He's also uh, the host of a new podcast called In the Bubble with Andy Slavitt. Uh, the first couple episodes uh, were great. He had Mark Cuban and Amy Klobuchar. Definitely worth a listen. Uh, and Andy has been a leader uh, on the issues of the coronavirus and the federal government's response with other uh, prominent healthcare policy leaders uh, issuing sort of public declarations about what we all can do, but more importantly, talking about what the federal government needs to be doing to combat this pandemic. So let's bring in Andy Slavitt. Welcome to the podcast, Andy. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Renato. Good to talk to you again. Absolutely. So you obviously know a thing or two about launching big federal government efforts. Uh, you know, What do you make of the federal government's response to the coronavirus pandemic thus far? Well, look, I think there'll be a time for historians and bipartisan task forces to spend a lot of time on that. You know, I think the most important point is um, you have to navigate from where you are, not from where you wish you were. You know, I'm, I'd say I'm not spending a lot of energy on how we got here. Um, obviously, you know, there is, uh, when you're chasing something that's exponentially like a virus, being late and not being prepared is especially costly. And the reason is, 
uh, it's sort of like chasing a speedboat, swimming after a speedboat when you're from the dock. But, you know, if it's 15 feet away, by the time you get there, it's 50 feet away or 100 feet away. And, you know, that's what we've experienced here is getting, getting caught unawares has been uh, costly. I think right now um, what we have to hope for and we have to push for from a federal response is the kind of organization and leadership and decision-making that we haven't seen a lot of uh, from this administration. You know, in he, the Trump called himself uh, at one point a wartime president. I think that's fine. Um, I think what we want is him to be actually behave like a wartime president, which means um, arming your troops, the front lines, um, being very skeptical of information presented to you, not being overly uh, overcome by good news, not letting your ego get in the way, reading all the maps, making quick, decisive decisions, not um, thinking one thing one day and then hearing from somebody and changing your mind the next, not presenting selective facts. So those are the, um, those are the characteristics that I think, to the extent that he keeps displaying them, that, make it, that will make leading uh, ourselves out of this more challenging. Uh, and we've got to just push for a more transparent, uh, focused uh, process from the federal government. One thing I think that provides a challenge is in this effort, and frankly, I'm sure you dealt with the same thing when you were uh, launching the ACA and getting the ACA in gear, is that you have to work with 50 state governments. And, you know, we've seen this uh, push and pull. Trump has been blaming certain governors, saying that some of them aren't grateful enough. Uh, there's clearly been some governors who are critical of uh, the president. Uh, what are the challenges that the federal government faces in trying to coordinate between various state governments? Well, look, it, you know, it, what he, he and what the administration is trying to lead through, um, I've got uh, uh, plenty of sympathy for. It's not an easy task. And we all want them to succeed, regardless of whether politically we support them. Uh, you know, I think you've got a lot of, you know, he is who he is. And I think I've had several people ask me, how do we change him in a way that um, gets the job done? And the reality is, is we know from our own life experience, you can't really change people. And so what you see is governors like Andrew Cuomo, Phil Murphy, and others uh, who want something from Trump, um, i.e. The, the great resources that the federal government controls, both in terms of uh, medical capacity, the DOD, uh, from supplies, from the, from the federal stockpile, is just in continuing to ingratiate themselves to him and praise him and thank him publicly uh, because flattery works with him. We know that, and they know that. And their job is to protect their state. And so, you know, we're seeing a display of, you know, governors who are in the reality they're in, and they're, they're needing to do that. There's a lot that's going on that's understandable, but also counterproductive. So, for example, you know, hospital uh, the governors, as they evaluate how many things they need, are inclined to want to estimate on the high side, right? Because normally, if you run out of ventilators, you have people dying in the hallways, that's not a good thing. And so you want to avoid that. And so if you have um, estimates which tell you you may need 150 or you may need 300, you're going to estimate on the high side. That's normally okay, except when you're in a shortage, like we are now. Uh, if you say 300, but you only needed 150, then you've really taken very valuable 
resources from other states. So what FEMA is trying to do is try to get a real on-the-ground estimate of how much it is that people really need. And when they do that and they buy up all of the equipment, the governors in turn, um, if they want it more, they end up competing with one another and with FEMA. And so they keep bidding up the prices. And so you've got this sort of chaos out there now where because it's not well organized, everybody in trying to serve their own interest, feeling like nobody else is protecting their interest, are uh, making the situation worse. A lot of our listeners have been asking us about the national stockpile. And obviously, Jared Kushner made some remarks about it that drew a lot of uh, concerns and hackles because, you know, he was saying that that was for us, in other words, for the federal government, not for the states. You know, what is the role of the national stockpile in this? What, what should, what, what is, should the federal government be doing to making, to make sure that the, the supplies that are needed uh, are in the right, uh, you know, are being given to the right states? So I think the, the question that they've been wrestling with with the national stockpile is uh, right now the big needs have been New York, uh, New Orleans, and Detroit. And if you met all of those needs according to what the governors asked for, then the federal government worries that what happens if there's the next round of people who uh, as, uh, who run out of equipment? What happens when uh, other states have needs? And um, some might look at that and say, well, they're harming the blue states to favor the red states. But it's, it's a, and that may be, may be a political calculus in it, but there's also a reasonableness to um, trying to get the logistics right. And FEMA and military operations all need to um, figure out the right game plan because in reality, you know, we've uncovered that there are several thousand ventilators in Afghanistan that are not in use, that there are major hospital chains uh, in parts of the country that have excess ventilators, um, and they won't give them up unless they're sure they're going to be able to get ventilators back if and when they need them. But like Governor Kate Brown did in Oregon, where she said, we don't need these here, you take them, and Governor Cuomo turned around and said, not only thank you, but you can be damn sure that New Yorkers are going to have your back if you need our help. That is really kind of what we need to see is people um, maximizing our resources and maximizing our, uh, our assets. Um, we've not had to do that before. You know who's good at doing that is the military. The military um, moves resources, troops, ammunition, uh, medical supplies around all day long. And so we need that level of effort and work here. Yeah. One one uh, additional way in which we've seen a patchwork, I would say a patchwork effort by states, has been stay-at-home orders. And we've gotten a lot of questions from our listeners uh, about that as well. You know, you know, in other words, should we have a national stay-at-home order? I know uh, you had, la- you know, you were one of the leaders kind of launching the Stay Home, Stay Lives effort early on in this crisis. And you've lately been commenting on and talking about smart quarantine, the idea of smart quarantine. What do you think we should be doing in terms of stay-at-home uh, nationally and, and, and not only in terms of policy, but also what should, what should our listeners be thinking about in, in terms of staying at home? Well, here's the good news. The good news is that um, we are indeed flattening the curve with our efforts to stay home. We are slowing the spread. Uh, we are saving lives. Um, we are just at the point now uh, where we're a little bit more than a couple weeks 
out from when we started taking those actions and we are starting to see the curves head the right way finally. So I hope everybody feels encouraged and I hope everybody feels like they're not only their sacrifice is making it easier for doctors and nurses on the front lines to do their jobs and fighting this virus, but also giving the scientists time to um, solve these problems for us. And so we're going to need to continue uh, to do that. Uh, we're not going to snap back uh, to normalcy, uh, as Dr. Fauci has said, uh, in one fell swoop. Uh, we are going to have to recognize that um, the same thing that held true in 1918 holds true now. The best results come from starting early uh, at, at social isolation and sustaining it longer. And the, the cities in 1918 that led up even a few weeks too early in the Spanish flu had twice the death rate as cities that sustained just for a few, for a few weeks longer. I think the idea of doing this and doing it seriously uh, and getting close to Wuhan levels of, of transmission is something that's hard for a liberal democracy. It's hard for people who love their freedom, uh, are, are suspicious of government, which we are by definition. Uh, we're founded on those principles. Um, and also a consumer culture where we want what we want and we want it now. And, of course, we worry about the economy. You know, all of those things make this, make this challenging as compared to in, in a place like China where um, they've been able to do, I think, a better job locking down and in other societies. But it will save a lot of lives. And it's really not a choice between public health and the economy. I know it's been presented that way. That's really a false consideration because businesses aren't going to hire again and consumers aren't going to spend again until there's a solution here to the public health crisis. So we have to solve the public health crisis before we're able to get back to normal. And then uh, there will be more, there'll be more baseball seasons. There'll be more, uh, movie openings will be more all of those things uh, in our future and in many more people's future if we can stay the course for a while and hashtag stay home. Well, one uh, one concept that has been discussed, and I know there was a New York Times op-ed that you had discussed, was the idea of having more widespread testing so that when people you know, uh, test positive and then after a period of time they test negative, we can send those people back to work. I mean, do you think that's really practical? I mean, at this point, we don't have enough tests, right, uh, in this country? Well, we don't, and we won't for a while. Um, and, you know, I was just talking with someone that we that I helped um, uh, move it over uh, into the White House to be a, a kind of a testing lead, a testing czar, uh, if you will, uh, about the strategy there. And you know, we are competing for global resources that we started late, uh, and uh, there's only limited supply of these resources. We have, um, we have to align our um, – uh, we can't be laissez-faire in our approach to making these tests. We have to align the resources behind the people that can make the most tests the quickest. Uh, you know, the FDA, I think, is doing a better job uh, of getting us there. But, you know, we're not going to be able to, to your point – um, move back into a containment mode until we've really kind of arrested the growth and then have the ability to test and contact trace uh, people. And, you know, I think it's a good goal to try to be able to put ourselves in that position uh, by the end of the summer, because I think by the end of the summer, it's going to become very difficult um, for people to uh, resist going back to some of their old ways. 
and uh, not to mention the fact that it'll be a, the the presidential election, and that'll create some, I think, false pressure to move more quickly. Well, we've heard more recently from Dr. Fauci and others about the potential of a kind of a second wave of the virus coming back after a period of time. I think a lot of Americans right now are afraid that things will never fully get back to normal. I mean, things will get better, but not back to where they were before. Uh, what, what do you say to people who have those concerns? What can we expect uh, once we get the curve flattened and get past this initial hump? I think that was my point about um, the 1918 flu reaction. You know, San Francisco had something like 800 deaths per 100,000, and Minneapolis had like 312. And uh, it was really on the second wave that um, a lot of the damage was done because you get a false sense of security over the summer. Uh, you know, the virus doesn't flourish as much during the summer. Uh, you have... Uh, you know, you, people have a measure of success. They want and need to get back to work. Uh, and then, you know, this thing takes off uh, in a really significant way in a second wave. So you can prevent a second wave, which I think you can do through smart uh, testing and contact tracing. Then you, can, then you can save a lot of lives. I want to switch topics for a minute because I think there's a relation between the Affordable Care Act and this crisis. You know, if if people ask you, you know, what do you think of when you think of Andy Slavitt? People think of the Affordable Care Act and the efforts that you took there. Right now, there are a lot of people who are sick, who are afraid of being sick, uh, who don't have the covers that they'd like to have. Um, and part of that is due to the Trump administration's um, destabilization of the ACA. I, can you speak to you know, the lack of coverage and the, and the, 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 the challenge that people have in getting coverage and what, what can be done to, to, uh, you know, to make that better in the, in the short term. We've identified five priorities for Congress. And I just spoke with uh, a number of congressional leaders today. We've, we've, we've put this forward, um, that, that really have to happen. Um, one of them is, in fact, to make sure that people don't have to worry about the costs of health care. Um, and you can't do that simply by saying, okay, we'll, we'll pay your bills. Um, because what you want is you want people at the first sign of a fever to do a telemedicine visit or do something that can help them. You don't want them to wait until they're uh, having trouble breathing, in which case they're not only going to put their health at risk, they're going to be um, at putting others at risk, and they're going to be, uh, uh, and it's going to be much more expensive as a country to take care of people when we wait too long. So, you know, the thing about covering people, the thing about um, about insurance is um, it really allows people to um, lead the life that they want to leave and achieve the kind of fulfillment that they want to achieve um, and not have to worry um, about about some of the basics. So, so, you know, I think this is a big blind spot for the Trump administration. Um, you know, I've not been, not been shy, as you pointed out, about making that clear. Those views on the, by the Trump administration have not disappeared. Um, interestingly, I think they're, it's really not coming from HHS or CMS, uh, the, the Department of Health and Human Services, or the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They actually, I think, have been supportive of using the Affordable Care Act in this crisis. It's actually been coming from 
Trump and from the White House. And I think there's general distaste for many Republicans about the ACA and about uh, Medicaid and many of these programs uh, because they're just fundamentally different than what they believe. I think it, it, a lot of it has to do with the fact that President Obama was the one who pushed for and initiated that plan. I mean, if it was called Romney Care and it was came from the Senate and Mitt Romney had pushed it, I think we would have a different reaction there uh, from them, don't you? I think that's part of it. I think it's part of it. I think the government, you know, I think they, you know, they don't like also they don't like to spend money that they could be using to cut taxes. And of course, they've just learned that if you don't spend money taking care of people's health then crises like this erupt and you end up spending way more money. I mean, they're, they're, before they're all said and done, they'll spend five or six trillion dollars. Um, and, and think about this, Renato. Um, most Americans believe that everybody should have the ability to afford to take care of their family if someone gets sick. That's just what most people believe. Uh, but what makes it more vivid than right now when you're the person sitting next to you on the bus or uh, wherever you are, don't you kind of want them to be healthy when you're in the middle of an infectious disease? Doesn't it kind of make the point that your health is only going to be as good as the least healthy people in the community? And so there is a we're all in this together thing that some people get um, and some people need to be reminded of. And sadly, this is a, a painful reminder and most of us are going to know people, if you don't already, who've lost people um, in this in this crisis, and that is a um, that's something that um, um, is horrible. But hopefully, means that people will not soon forget that we've got to start to think differently. One of our listeners, uh, John Mitchell, asked, you know, th- that you know, insurance companies didn't know about this pandemic when they set rates for twenty twenty. His fear is that there may be a massive rate increase in 2021 uh, in terms of insurance premiums. Is that something that people should be concerned about? It's really odd is that that is a, a totally understandable reaction, and, and there may be some truth to it. But what's happened is because most hospitals have canceled their elective procedures and because primary care uh, visits are down even 40 to 50 percent, that that this has been and will, I think, probably likely be a massively profitable year for insurance companies. Um, doesn't mean that they won't pick up costs um, later and they won't pick up um, the costs of this severe illness as well. But when you balance it out, uh, the experts I talk to, it's not entirely clear that they're not going to end up um, in something very close to the same place. Hard to know which, which way it will work out. But um, right now, they are making money hand over fist. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. So really, the, the, the potential specter of future pandemics shouldn't really have uh, an impact on the, on, on the health insurance that people receive. In fact, it may actually help the bottom line of insurance companies. It is right now. Uh, well, I, I, you know, one concern I think that, um, that people have is, what they should be doing. You know, in the beginning when you wrote, you had written an op-ed very early on in USA Today that I read, many others read, you, know, you and others did, talking about staying at home. You know, I think there's a lot of fear that people have right now 
about just going to the grocery store or even handling a package uh, that they get at their home. You know, obviously you're not a doctor, but as somebody who's giving advice to people in the community, has your advice changed about what people should be doing? Because originally you had talked about people staying at home, but still leaving the house for essentials and going for a walk and things like that. Yeah, look, I mean, you can, you absolutely should not feel like a prisoner. And look, it's one thing if you live in New York City, it's another if you live in the cornfields of Nebraska. Um, and, you know, my mother lives in Chicago, 79 years old, although if she listens to this, uh, I said she's 59 years old. You met my <laughs> mother, actually, right now. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, like her, if she's going to go for a walk, um, maintaining six feet of distance, wearing a mask, going at early hours or late hours when it's not crowded because she lives in the city, it's a lot more sensible. But she should have her groceries delivered. She should have her uh, packages handled um, and, and let them sit for a while before she handles them. She should hand wash religiously, um, and she should not be touching her face. Those are really important protections for people, particularly people who are older or sicker, or have people in our family that are, if you live in a multi-generational house, um, household, apartment, close quarters, you've got to be extra, extra careful. But, uh, but you know, I, I think the reason I talk about you know why it's important to be able to go out and get some air, and and all this is because um, this won't work well if you view yourself as a prisoner. Um, this this will work better if you view yourself as making a, a sacrifice for sure, that is going to save people's lives, um, that it, but that has some purpose behind it, and where you keep yourself and your family safe and care and and careful. But by all means, not without joy, not without some, if, if what gives you pleasure is just walking outside and seeing the sunset, there's safe ways to do that. Um, that's a different story than going to a bar or going on spring break or sitting <laughs> and chatting with your neighbor, you know, two or three feet from one another. Um, those are things you should not be doing. Uh, those aren't, those aren't safe practices right now. Uh, but putting on a mask and um, going out and doing those kinds of things. Uh, I strongly encourage. Yeah, I I have seen a lot of anxiety and uh and fear and concern amongst my own family and friends. Uh, I think it's important for everyone to take care of their mental health as well as their physical health when they're staying indoors. Uh, because if you're driving yourself crazy, that's besides it's not gonna that's gonna hurt you more than it helps you. Yeah, look, anxiety is driven by uncertainty, and anxiety is driven by. Um, you know, real issues like people being concerned about their financial future and uh, being in a, a, a zone where they just didn't have a context for because they didn't expect it. And so people sort of lose their bearings. It's really important that, first of all, if that's how you're feeling, you allow yourself to feel that way. But you also realize you're not going through it alone. Uh, you know, we're all going through this together. And to the extent that you can recognize that in others, and you know, pick up the phone and um, be in even greater communication. Uh, you know, we I FaceTime with with my mom because I you know I can't go to Chicago and see her, but um, you know we're in extra close touch. And I want to make sure if she's having a bad day, which I'm sure she'll have occasionally, that uh, we're connecting. And likewise, if I'm having a bad day, I'm hopeful one of my friends or one of my uh, people in my family will you know, we'll recognize that and check in. And, you know, that's how we're going to get ourselves uh, through this. We will get through this. I think people ask me sometimes, you know, is this, are we going to get through this? We will definitely get through this. 
The only questions we're going to have at the end of it is, uh, and look, I, I'm not saying that things go back to exactly the way they were before, but well, things will go back to a normal that we can all um, live our lives uh, very close to the same way we did. The only questions are going to be, number one, how many people did we lose along the way? And did we do everything possible to lower that number? And secondly, what did we do in this time? How did we help? Uh, when our kids and our grandkids ask us, you know, what did we do to help during this time? You know, we're going to remember that. I think people, I think people have a lot of good stories, whether it's because they knitted uh, or knitted, sewed a mask or whether it's because they brought soup to a neighbor or because they made sure that someone who'd lost the job had some way of getting income, whatever those things are, they're going to be um, the stories that, that will bond us together for quite some time. You know, uh, you mentioned wearing a mask. Uh, we've, and some of our listeners have been critical of that and questioning whether or not a mask that's made, whether it's, you know, out of a handkerchief or a t-shirt or something like that could be effective. Can you explain how, uh, so, so a mask that's not, uh, made out of, you know, that's not a surgical mask or something like that could actually be, uh, somewhat helpful or, or, or improve things a little bit? Yeah. I mean, you don't need a surgical mask. Um, uh, that's, only if you're really at, at high levels of aerosol exposure, kind of, kind of really significantly. Think of it this way. Don't think of the mask as protecting you. Think of the mask as protecting others. It sends a signal that when you go out and wear, and you're wearing a mask, that you are, um, because it, you could potentially be asymptomatic for all the people you run into now, because you could be infectious. Um, that you care about making sure you're not spreading this to them. And because, uh, as gross as it sounds, little particles fly out of our mouth all the time, apparently. Who knew? Um, <laughs> those, those particles are highly contagious and highly infectious. If you put on a mask, you're basically saying, I want to make sure to protect my neighbors, my community, other people here, so that, uh, and that's, that, that's what I'm doing. So it's a very neighborly communal thing to do now because those particles if they get into um, someone else's mouth nose or eyes they can get infected and so i think it's um it's 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 some protection for you uh but if you don't hand wash and you don't do all the the other things you don't keep six feet distance um you know you're still exposing yourself but there's some data which shows that if 80% of people wore masks, uh, we could almost completely um, end the spread uh, of this. And so, you know, I think there are, there are the places where that has become the social norm have actually seen a dramatic drop. So don't just wear a mask. Tell everybody around you to wear a mask, and it will really help. Well, you know, one last point uh, is you, you had mentioned recently, I know there's been some plans that were floated for Major League Baseball to open up uh, in May and in Arizona, and you had publicly said that was not re- not responsible. I'm curious, what do you when, what will this new normal look like? When when will we be able to have um, uh, sporting events? Because it's clear the president uh, is eager uh, for that to happen. It's clear that there's some pressure uh, to have uh, whether it's sporting events or kids going back to school in the fall. Uh, for example, there's going to be certain pressure points to bring things back to quote normal. Yeah, my 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 
point wasn't that they should or shouldn't play baseball. My point is that the Major League Baseball should not float this and should not claim to have the consent of political appointees. That's no way to make this decision. Let's let our health commissioners and our scientists and our epidemiologists decide um, how the best way and what is the best way to um, continue to move move back to normal life. And we all miss these things. I mean, I miss NBA basketball. People miss baseball. They're going to miss new TV shows and movies. And and, and it's it, yes, there'll be political pressure from the White House going into an election. But all but but there will be all kinds of forces where people will will really crave getting back to normal life. And, you know, I just hope that we don't do it out of social pressure. I hope we do it um, in a responsible way because the scientists uh, that I mentioned speaking, speaking of think it's the right thing to do. Look, there's going to be tons of baseball seasons. And, and, you know, you can always recover money. You can recover people. And I would hate for the uh, Major League Baseball or anybody else to make a decision uh, that they end up really regretting and by the way, it's not just for Major League Baseball, but th- these are role models. So if they play, and maybe they think they're doing it in a safe way, it, they have to think about the influence they have on Little League teams and on uh, all kinds of other activities where people say, hey, if Major League Baseball can do this safely, why can't I? And so, you know, that's what leadership is. Leadership is making tough decisions, making grounded decisions based on data, uh, it's not about making what I think are um, decisions driven by the wrong reasons. So maybe they can play, but I want to hear it from, and I think we should all want to hear it from uh, the people that are responsible for understanding what's right and what's wrong. So earlier I mentioned uh, to our listeners that you have a new podcast that's come out called In the Bubble with Andy Slavitt. He has some amazing guests, uh, Mark Cuban, uh, Senator A.B. Klobuchar, uh, in your first uh, episodes. Can you tell us a little bit about what the podcast is about? It's obviously, uh, it, it's very topical right now, that's for sure. Yeah, so the, the, the genesis of the podcast is, um, you know, we're all spending time now with our families. And uh, unfortunately for my son, well, my, both of my sons, that means they've got to spend time with their parents because we're really <laughs> the only choices. And uh, my 18-year-old, uh, high school senior, said to me, hey, Dad, maybe we should make a podcast. And I said, yes. Honestly, in the, fir- in the first instance, more to do something with my son than, uh, than, than, than just to put on a podcast because I thought that would be fun. But as I thought about it and thought about kind of what people need, you know, the, the idea of having a, something that the whole family can sit around and listen to in a way that doesn't scare them, uh, but g- gives them uh, facts, but it also exposes them to things that they need to hear, but in a, in a, in a, in a way that I think they can handle. I call it uh, 50% Winston Churchill, 50% Fred Rogers. Um, and that's kind of the, that's kind of the tone uh, is kind of going from our bubble or our bunker uh, to yours and doing it in a way where the whole family can listen. And I'm really sort of been struck by the context of that line we've all heard about from Fred Rogers, where he says, when in, uh, when you see something scary, look for the helpers. And, uh, and I think the nature of the podcast is to want to be uh, those helpers, not by um, hiding people from hiding the truth from people. I think people can handle uh, the truth, but, but to deliver it in a way where people feel like there's really a path. 
Wow. That's fantastic. I'm a huge, uh, Mr. I was a huge Mr. Roger neighborhood, uh, fan as a kid. So we all were, right? Everyone loves Fred Rogers and I'm a Winston Churchill fan. I, in fact, that's my favorite, my favorite place in London. Uh, my favorite museum is the Churchill Museum where you can go see as a puncher. So the first, so our first, our first episode was, uh, was with Mark Cuban, uh, who believe it or not, um, was really our kind of, uh, had, had a lot of Fred Rogers in him in terms of, uh, he was the first, person to say, hey, I'm paying um, all of the Mavericks employees, um, hourly employees, everybody who works in the stadium for the duration as if the games were going on. Uh, we, we had a conversation with Amy Klobuchar, and then we have a, one coming up uh, today, the same day yours is coming up, um, with Phil Murphy, who is, uh, like me, a big Churchill fan, but also is an on-ground zero in New Jersey, the governor of New Jersey, uh, uh, dealing with what he needs to do. It's kind of a Churchill-esque episode. And, uh, you know, we've got other fun people coming up like Tina Fey talking about how do you make people laugh at a time like this? Um, the former Surgeon General, uh, Vivek Murthy, um, some, I think, interesting and surprising people like around, like Chelsea Clinton around how do you parent uh, uh, small kids at a time like this? Uh, so I, I hope it's um, it gives people a mix of the, the kind of things they need to think about and put life in context as well as um, the uh, the information and the feelings that help me get through this. Wow. That's an amazing guest list. Sounds fantastic. What, where can people listen to uh, In the Bubble if they want to uh, check it out? You can get on Apple, you get on Stitcher, you get on Google, you get on whatever you find your podcast. I've told that that's the phrase the, the the big professional podcast people like yourself have a phrase, right? It's like, wherever you find your podcast. Pretty much. I think that's the phrase. Uh, and uh, hopefully, you know, we'll, the people who are uh, listeners of our podcast, listening uh, to, to your great podcast and vice versa, because I think giving them things in a way that, uh, that you, you do uh, is, I think, consistent with kind of how hopefully people will feel when they're listening to In the Bubble. Without a doubt. Well, thank you so much, Andy. Thanks for joining us. A real pleasure and always very informative. Great. Nice to talk to you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 